Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Um, Today, we are going to be discussing a subject that we get so many calls and emails about. And we promote an idea that there's five stages of kidney disease. Understanding them, what do they mean? What does it mean when you have a GFR of 60? And and it can be very confusing to people. It can be confusing if you don't understand or know the different specifics of stages of kidney disease. So today we're going to be speaking to Dr. Steve Rosansky, and he was just as frustrated as me and decided to write a book about this subject called Kidney Disease, a Self-Help Guide to Better Health and with Proven Therapies. So welcome to the show, Dr. Rosansky. Thank you. Thank you. And you can call me Dr. Rowe, which is uh, the nickname that I was given by my patients and staff. (laughs) Okay. Dr. Rowe is so much more cooler. (laughs) I mean, it really is. It makes you seem hip and cool. (laughs) just, Just to correct, the actual title of the book is Learn the Facts About Kidney Disease. I was going to call it Learn the Truth About Kidney Disease because there's a lot of misunderstanding. But I try to just present it objectively, and I call it learn the facts. Well, um, you know, it's 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 there's so much information out there, and a lot of times how Google works is that we're understanding is that, you know, people buy keywords, and a lot of the keywords that are bought that you would search for take you right to a herbal supplement. Isn't that convenient? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. So tell us a little bit about your background and, you know, why you chose to make kidney your specialty. Well, okay. So I uh, started medical school in 1968 uh, through 72. And um, I was very interested in kidney disease uh, at that time. Well, first of all, I had a... a uh, almost a movie star appearing uh, uh, kidney physiology professor in med school who was a great guy. He actually stuttered, which made him even more charming. Ooh. And <laughs> the, the, other, the other reason why I decided to go into kidney uh, as, a, as a specialist is uh, back then there weren't very many fields, uh, subfields in internal medicine that you could really do something for a patient. And I felt very excited about having the opportunity to offer uh, kidney transplantation and dialysis. So I, and plus I loved uh, kidney physiology. So it's, it's a fascinating field. And uh, you can really do stuff for patients. I am in total agreement because in 1968, you know, I had complete kidney failure at age two and was put on the Kiel dialyzer, which was a horrible name, by the way. Dr. Kiel, why did they name it? I've used them in my, my training in Montreal. They were still using them in 1978, believe it or not. <laughs> and and they had a Scribner shunt and, you know, all of these icons that really made the kidney community, um, you know, excel with their innovation. So, um, yeah, it's nice to talk to somebody who's been around as long as I've been, you know, learning this from the patient side. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what are the tests that determine kidney disease and maybe explain them a little bit? Okay, so let me put it in historical context. So back in the day uh, when I got into the field and you were first diagnosed, uh, there was just a lab test, uh, two lab tests. One was called BUN, Luxury Nitrogen, and the other more important test is serum creatinine. And um, back in the day, all we did was we followed people's serum creatinine, and, and it was an easy way to calculate what kidney function was because you just divide serum creatinine by 100. So, for example, if you had a creatinine of 3, you would have about a 33% of kidney function. Okay. And so that was back in the day we had serum creatinine, and we didn't get involved with all of the calculated kidney function numbers, which are, which we call 
estimated glomerular filtration rate or estimated GFR or EGFR. So to put it in perspective, um, back in your day, back in when I started uh, in the field of nephrology, we would not even think about putting a patient on dialysis unless their creatinine level was around 10 or more, 10, 11, 12. And in today's world, patients are being put on dialysis at creatinines of 4, 5, and 6. So, in essence, they're being put on dialysis at very, very, uh, relatively high levels of kidney function. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. Uh, I have a, I have many papers uh, that deal with the issue of when is a good time or the best time to consider putting a patient on dialysis. And one would think earlier the better, but that's not the case at all. It turns out that people probably survive longer if they start dialysis the way we used to do it at much lower levels of kidney function than we're currently uh, starting dialysis at. Well, and I've followed, I've followed some of that history of people were believing that it, if there, somebody was at a 14% function, 12% function, and now I'm learning, you know, they put them on too soon because as soon as you put somebody on dialysis or you even do a preemptive transplant too early, there's like a sweet spot. You're you're opening them to a whole other host of problems because if you get a transplant, you you know, you have to take immunosuppressant drugs and, and then if you're going on dialysis, you have, you know, you're having an invasive procedure. <laughs> so you have to like thread that needle very finely to ward off symptoms, um, but at the same time, you know, you don't want to start too soon because if you put somebody at a GFR at 14 and you give them a transplant, they might have stayed just fine with their own kidney till a 10 GFR. Is, is that pretty much summing it up? A 10% kidney function, not GFR. Well, uh, is that fact, sum it up? Yeah, well, there's, well, let me kind of flesh it out a little bit more. So, in fact, so I've given many, many, many talks around the world uh, and have been recognized for my seminal paper in 2011, which was called the number one game changer in nephrology. <clears throat> and what we found, this was a large observational study, we found that the later patients started dialysis, the longer their survival, with the best survival with EGFRs less than five. Now, you would ask why should patients who start dialysis potentially not live as long if they start too soon? Because dialysis has a lot of potential downsides. During dialysis, there's decreased blood flow to the heart, to the kidneys, to the brain. Uh, when you're on dialysis uh, over a year, you lose essentially all of your remaining kidney function. And it's interesting, over the years, you know, if you've got people on dialysis and you've been on dialysis, I guess, you know, people try to measure your something called KTV or, you know, your numbers on dialysis. And the fact is, no matter how fancy we've made our dialysis, nothing can replace even minimal levels of kidney function. And I'm talking right. five, or, five or less right. regarding benefits, all kinds of benefits, including survival benefits. So in essence, by starting before you have to start, you are uh, creating potentially harmful things and you're losing the benefit of your own kidney function, which is very critical regarding uh, anemia, uh, uh, you know, all, all fluid control, lots of uh, important issues that your own kidneys uh, can do, that no matter how good our machines are, we've never been able to do as good as your own kidneys. Well, it's interesting because, you know, it's been shown in studies that when you're on PD, you keep your existing kidney function more than on traditional hemodialysis, which is, you know, can dry out your kidney, basically, right, um, during the process. Is that uh, I go to very I, I basic would, I, Yeah, so I, I'm like you. I'm an advocate. My, my, my recommendations for anyone who gets to advanced 
uh, kidney disease, and we'll back up to the earlier stages, I guess. So we'll start with the advanced and go back to the earlier stages. But my recommendation is to try to get a uh, a donor, uh, right. related or unrelated, as clearly your best option for long-term survival. And not to transplant too early, just like not to dialyze too early, right. for the reasons you just said, longer immunosuppression, um, and kidneys don't last forever. So there's no point in putting in a kidney at, you know, let's say over 15 EGFR or even 10 to 15. But, but certainly, um, that's been done too early. But that's not the majority of people in, uh, in the end stage world. Majority are dialysis patients. <clears throat> so my advice is to try to get on a form of home dialysis and certainly home peritoneal is the simplest. And I think probably gives the best quality of life. Mm-hmm. Whether it uh, will result in slower loss of kidney function, probably not good data, but probably will. And so I agree with that. And you know, last the choice, of course, is in in center dialysis and and the continuous forms of dialysis, whether it's you know any form of uh, peritoneal dialysis or some people are even doing daily hemo, which I'm not a big advocate for. But the continuous forms of dialysis are kind of like what your normal kidneys would do. They don't work three days a week. They work 24-7. So I, I am an advocate of uh, home peritoneal dialysis. Well, and I was on PD for nine years, and I was on in-center hemo when I was, a, you know, 12 to 14, and it was acetate dialysis. I did not do well at all. I was seizures and... And then I went on PD and like my whole world changed. My life became my own. I felt okay. I could eat and drink a little bit more and and really was like night and day. And it's it's amazing how I see so many people who have kidney disease or on dialysis don't advocate for their best treatment because you have to advocate for it a, a lot of times. And uh, you know, I always believe home therapy is so interesting. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, because I think it's important, uh, existing kidney function. And when I had to go back on dialysis recently before my fourth transplant for about a year, I'm a big fan. I mean, I bleed it. I used to work for the company for four years in the 90s, uh, the crit line. And I had my own personal crit line, and I never let my blood volume go below 7%. I did this myself. Uh, but I kept my existing kidney function, and it really did improve my health. I mean, people don't realize, like what you said, keeping existing kidney function is the most important thing you can do for your overall health. And, and trying to do the things that really work to slow the decline of kidney function. Exactly. And as far as what really works, <laughs> um, if you look f- for literature for patients, uh, books about kidney disease, almost every book is pushing low-protein diets. And um, <clears throat> as a matter of fact, uh, there's some uh, books connected to a, uh, a ketogenic analog for very low-protein diets. Uh, as a way to slow kidney function decline. The fact is that low protein diets are not recommended for diabetics because of right. the potential to get hypoglycemic and because of the fact that you're already restricted in calories and, and carbohydrates and you will potentially uh, get uh, malnutrition, which is a serious uh, complication of developing progressive kidney disease anyway. People with progressive kidney disease tend to have um, uh, decreasing nutritional uh, parameters. So what I did in, in, in writing my book is I uh, produced what I call a smart diet for CKD, which basically gets back to why we even know, want people to know their EGFR. And most kidney doctors, believe it or not, and certainly uh, a lot of GPs, and I would say the vast majority of patients, don't know the reason why we created these uh, stages of CKD. It's because kidney disease, an EGFR that is abnormal, uh, or protein in the urine, 
put you at higher risk of atherosclerosis. That's the main thing. And what I discuss a lot in my book are lifestyle issues and ways to decrease the atherosclerosis risk that comes along with a decline in your kidney function number. And unless you are one of these unusual patients, the vast majority of patients with uh, stages 1, 2, 3 CKD or even stage 4 don't have to worry about dialysis or kidney transplant. I mean, the numbers are enormous. Like 10% of the population may have a normal, an abnormal kidney function number. But it's, you know, probably less than 0.1% or 0.01% of these people that ever wind up having to make a decision about dialysis and transplant. So to advocate very low-protein diets and keto analogs, which uh, some uh, uh, online sources uh, sell for quite a bit of money, um, I think is misguided. And the only time that I would say they could be a reasonable thing to consider is if you're one of these uh, unlucky people that has high levels of urine protein and you're losing kidney function fairly rapidly and you're not diabetic and you've got, let's say, uh, an EGFR uh, in the 30 or less range. Other than that, the main uh, thing that all patients with protein in their urine need to be on is the ACE and R R drugs. I don't know if you want to discuss those or something. But they're, they like they like remove some of the protein from your urine, right? So the ACE drugs, and the way you know about an ACE drug is uh, they're called pril, benazapril, lysinopril, and the ARB drugs are the TANs, losartan, candesartan. Those classes of drugs are the only proven drugs that can slow the rate of loss of your kidney function, and they are very important for patients who have protein in their urine, especially people that have a good bit of protein in the urine. Well, and I would hear, I mean, with my third kidney, I had it for 20 years, but towards the end, I started, I guess I call it spilling protein, and you have like a number one, two, three, four, and the higher the number, the more protein. Right? That's how it's pretty much relayed to you? There's two tests that are generally used. One is a screening test. It's called a urine dipstick. If you go to your doctor, and it's an important test, and frankly, to me, a lot more important than your EGFR. And we'll get back to that in a minute. But uh, dipstick of um, trace is pretty much insignificant. Uh, One plus would be around 100 units. Two plus would be around 200 units. Three plus would be around 300 units. And when you get to the three plus or more, that's serious protein. People that consistently have that degree of protein should definitely be on one of the ACEs, Mm -hmm. the PRILs or the ARBs, the TAN drugs. And, And sometimes they may even need to be continued Even if you start one of these drugs, which is not unusual, and you get a decline of your kidney function number, your EGFR, because they're that important for people that have high levels of urine protein. And a lot of uh, kidney doctors would even say, even with a 30% decline, uh, that they should be considered to be continued. Now... I guess we kind of put the cart for the horse. About I know. The we still, we're going backwards. We're going to talk about GFR. Uh, but I, I wanted to just really emphasize a little bit because I think I'm a very visual person. Sure. Just to give a visual about the high protein level that's happening is that isn't protein and like blood sugar, they're like little sharp little molecules that your kidney has to filter and as it runs through your kidney like high protein or high blood sugar it kind of scars them. Is that really what happens over time? I mean, I'm trying to give like a visual of... Okay, well let me correct both okay. of those visuals Okay, so there's one uh, let's talk about blood sugar and diabetes which is responsible for about half the people that go on dialysis, they're diabetic. And um, 
there's a lot of confusion about blood sugar and progression of kidney disease. It turns out that once you have uh, CKD, once you have kidney disease, blood sugar control does not have a lot to do with the rate that you lose kidney function, unfortunately. Okay. Um, and as a matter of fact, as I mentioned in the book, you you need to be aware that hypoglycemia in a diabetic with kidney disease is pretty common. And aggressive control, trying to get the A1C, like in the six to six and a half range, is not recommended. Patients with CKD and A1C of seven is fine. In older people and people who have had some other medical complications like heart disease and so forth, eight is probably fine. That's regarding your A1C to control diabetes. Now, regarding protein, normal kidneys do not spill out protein. And kidneys that are abnormal will leak protein out. And that's a sign of an abnormal kidney. Okay. It's, it's leaked out from the basically tiny little blood vessels that compose the units of your kidney, which are called glomeruli, and hence glomerular filtration rate. So um, when blood is filtered through the glomeruli, protein should not be coming out into the tubules, which eventually get into your uh, bladder. You know, it goes from, goes from these tiny little blood vessels, they filter the stuff out, that's the glomerular filtrate. They'll go into tiny little tubules and stuff's done to it in the tubules in terms of taking care of salt reabsorption and other things that come uh, out of the urine. And then it eventually goes through into your ureter and then into your bladder. So the glomerular filtrate is what comes out of the capillaries. And unless the capillaries are damaged, you shouldn't have protein leaking. And when, it, and when you have damage to the capillaries, that's a glomerular type of disease. Okay. And and, and the, the actual rate that the stuff is coming out of those capillaries is the glomerular filtration rate, the sum of all of those million uh, units of, of, of tiny blood vessels. Now, um, so if you're spilling protein, it, it, it's abnormal. And most of the protein that uh, is spilled is called albumin. It's the main protein in your blood. And as you're spilling more and more protein, it's more likely that your kidney function is going to decline at a rapid rate. It's interesting because I think people believe that if you have, like you mentioned, in you, the lower protein diet, the lower protein, you're going to spill less protein. Um, and I'm glad that's changing because I have witnessed some people in my of you know running RSN like their albumin was so low that they're going to get an infection so you know a low protein diet which um, I think is being debunked because it's not good for your overall risk for preventing infection I mean the best defense against infection is a decent albumin right so you're I'm so glad that this is changing because my gut instinct was is minimizing people that they're so so low in protein that they start to waste away. I mean, they don't have any muscle. You need protein to build muscle. Right. <laughs> or keep so, muscle. So you're right. So, yeah, protein is key. Protein is key. Uh, it's the building block uh, of your body. And uh, having low protein and having malnutrition is a very high risk factor for death. Now, regarding why, and, and I'm not saying low-protein diets or, or relatively low-protein diets uh, have no benefit, uh, but let me back up to your uh, thinking about how the low-protein diet relates to protein in the urine. It does not. As a matter of fact, there's no relationship between being on a low-protein diet and trying to decrease the protein in your urine to help you with your kidneys. That's not the reason. The reason and the mechanism of how high protein, okay, high protein may cause damage to your kidneys. And whether or not lower protein, let's kind of put it in numbers. Normal diet that we have as Americans 
easily 100 gram protein diet. All right. Mm-hmm. So, so my smart diet, which is Mediterranean, vegetarian, <laughs> high fiber, low saturated fat, usual stuff to help you live longer and decrease your risk of atherosclerosis, which can produce heart attacks, strokes, and, and limb loss. And actually, uh, uh, by, uh, decreasing atherosclerosis, you slow down the rate of loss of kidney function. And so Mediterranean, vegetarian, high fiber diets, low saturated fat diets, uh, have all kinds of benefits regarding life, longer life, uh, less kidney disease, uh, also less colon cancer, less irritable bowel, uh, low protein diets, uh, will produce less acids, uh, which also can be a problem for patients, uh, with kidney disease. So, yeah, so I have a diet that I say if you want to be on a relatively low protein diet instead of on the usual 100 gram, maybe a 60 gram protein diet. What some of the books and uh, advocates of very low protein diets they're looking for diets of the 30 to 20 grams, which are almost impossible to follow. And and really, there's no point. There's no point to that. Now, one thing that I should mention, which has some promise, <laughs> is what you've got in your kitchen, baking soda. Sodium bicarbonate baking soda, especially for people who happen to have something called metabolic acidosis, too much acids in the blood, that may be beneficial to slow the decline of kidney function. But the um, low-protein diet is not something that's being used to decrease urine protein. The things that may decrease urine protein are primarily the ACE and the ARB drugs. And if you successfully decrease urine protein with an ACE and ARB drug, uh, you, you may well slow the, the rate of loss of your kidney function. That's been pretty well established. So let's move on to some of the stages of GFR. And uh, I always get a little frustrated because, you know, we use the term end-stage renal disease. And that's kind of a negative because people believe they're going to die. It's just their kidneys are dying, not you're dying. But then they change. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's a weird, like, end-stage. Change in the nomenclature, yeah. So, um Okay, let's go backwards. The, 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 there's five stages. Stage five is called uh, kidney failure. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that. Stage five is the EGFR number of 15 or less. To me, that's not kidney failure. To me, you may be, you know, 60, 70, 80, or 90 uh, with um, 10 to 15 uh, EGFR for years. And unfortunately, you may uh, be an unfortunate patient whose kidney specialist says, well, you're, you're 15 or even over 15, and I want to put you on a kidney machine. Now, there's no reason to do that unless there's some problem. And the main problem that older folks get into is heart failure. So that's one of the commonest reasons that people are being put on dialysis in the 15 range or higher. It's because they have trouble uh, managing their fluids. But a lot of this can be managed pretty well uh, with drugs, with high-dose diuretics. And for many of these people, you could avoid dialysis entirely. So to me, calling a kidney failure makes everybody think they need to go on dialysis. And again, the literature, of which I have published a good bit uh, with colleagues, is showing that 10, 5 to 10, or less than 5 is where we should be thinking more about starting than 10 to 15 or over 15 EGFR. But the stage 5 is called kidney failure. It's less than 15. Stage 4 is 15 to 30. Now, stage 4, they consider it uh, advanced. But interestingly, there's a study that came out of Denmark, and they did a 10-year follow-up of people with stage 4, and 25% of the people were stable for 10 years. And and that gets into um, something very important. 
So, so that's stage four. Stage three is 30 to 60. Okay. Let's stay in stage three for a little while because that's where the majority of people are getting told they have kidney disease. So in order to say that you have kidney disease, you need to have the number of your EGFR repeated at least uh, over three months or more to be less than 60. Okay. So let's say you have a 50. Does that mean anything? No, because you may have a 50 today and you come back to my office in three months and it's 45 and you come back to my office in six months and it's 55. And so one of the things that I emphasize in the book is to not get hung up on your kidney function number. And certainly there's no reason in the world to be looking at very low protein diets if you're in the 30 to 60 range at all. No reason at all to be thinking about that, despite the fact that a lot of people are being pushed into that. Um, and look at your trend. And most people in that 30 to 60 range are never going to go on to dialysis. It's very, very unusual. In the, in the 15 to 30 range, if you're younger, that's maybe one in three. You might wind up on dialysis. But if you're, let's say, over 70, it may be one in 15 or one in 20. Right. Because if, you, if you're an older person with uh, stage four or five, let's say you have less than 30, uh, your chances of dying of something else before you really need dialysis, and we'll get into when you really need it, uh, is much more likely that you'll die of another cause before you really need to go on dialysis. Well, um, and I can, my mom, ha uh, she passed away a couple of years ago, but she was, uh, had a UTI and was, a, we took her to the emergency room and her kidney failure went to like seven to eight percent. Right. Um, and, you know, I know immediately, get me a nephrologist in the room right now so I, they don't give her something that will push her into more kidney failure. Because sometimes they give you medicine, as you know, that aren't always good for your kidneys. And he basically he treated her for the UTA, gave her the right antibiotics that were not nephrotoxic. And her her GFR stayed around 25 to 28 uh, and she, you know, she was pre-diabetic and she never needed dialysis. I mean, she did die of something else. And but it looked like she could have potentially needed uh, dialysis when her GFR was seven for that short amount of time when she was having a serious infection going on. You, you bring up an excellent point. Excellent point. So one of the chapters in my book talks about what they call AKI which means acute kidney injury, which in layman's terms means your kidney function declines a lot over a short period of time. Right. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't have good medical care and they get put on dialysis like your mom could have been put on dialysis and the doctors never look back. And one of the things, so this is called, uh, you know, acute change of kidney failure, AKI, other terms, they call it ATN, acute tumor necrosis. Whatever it is, you may have a 30 uh, last month and now it's 7. And it's often when you get when people get hospitalized. Right. So they'll get hospitalized, they'll get an acute change in their kidney function, and many times they're put on dialysis, and guess what? Doctors don't look back at what your kidney function's doing. And one of the things that I point out in my book is if you are one of these patients, that gets put on dialysis for a big drop in your kidney function, make sure you ask your kidney doctor to check for recovery of your kidney function because a lot of declines of kidney function are reversible. The commonest reason is dehydration. It could be you get sick, you're vomiting, have diarrhea, you're sweating. You can easily uh, get your kidney function to drop 50 or 75%. And I've heard of that with people running marathons. I mean, they just dry themselves out to no end, and it's it's hard on your kidneys. Right, right. Well, and that's an, another important thing for patients to know if they have any degree of, of abnormal kidney function, whatever your stage. And I won't talk about stage one or two because that's really not kidney disease. 
although that's over 60. And, and I think most kidney specialists realize that if you're uh, over 60, you probably don't have any significant kidney worry unless you have protein. Now, there are some right. people that have kidney numbers over 60, but a lot of protein. That's a concern. But for the most part, um, if you, uh, if you have, uh, a kidney number that's 60 or less, um, it's unusual that you're going to have a rapid decline. And, and you need to look at the pattern over years. And so people need to not get hung up if today, what's my number today, doc? Oh, it's 55. Oh my goodness, it was 60 last week. Or it's 45. Uh, and now it's 35. I mean, these numbers bounce around a lot. And a lot of it could have to do with just laboratory variation. Or it could be due to some of the medicines you're on. Now, it's important for patients to know that if you've got an abnormal kidney function, you don't want to let yourself get dehydrated, especially if you're on one of the ACE drugs or one of the ARB drugs uh, or even NSAID stuff to treat uh, headaches, you know, like Motrin or the PPIs to treat uh, reflux. Uh, or if you're going to get contrast for an x-ray, you've got to be well hydrated to protect your kidneys. Well, even with NSAIDs, um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory meds, I guess that's what it is, mm-hmm. is that I don't take them with a the transplant at all. You know, they say that they have, you know, they can pro- cause problems with your kidneys. And I did one time was in the hospital and for a surgery and I accidentally got one and it just threw my potassium up like pretty rapidly uh, and it was reversed. I was fine. But I decided that I don't want to ever take NSAIDs. And I put I tell people I'm allergic to my kidneys, allergic to them because they understand they understand allergies when you're in a hospital. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but, well, well, the uh, NSAID thing is a little bit more complicated because. They're so important. In other words, people have pain. We don't want people to be addicted to opiates. Obviously, that's a huge uh, problem in our society. So what are you going to do? Well, I think it's, and, and this is uh, the, uh, and I'm talking for other uh, nephrology experts. Um, yeah, in general, we would not recommend high dose of these NSAIDs uh, for long periods of time. But if you take them as directed for short periods of time, it's probably okay. And, and so that's something that I would say is, is a reasonable thing. Now, one thing that people don't know is there's topical NSAIDs. So that's another way to treat pain for people with kidney disease. A lot of the NSAID products have topical forms. And the other thing to treat pain is Tylenol, which is not going to hurt your kidneys. If, as long as you don't have liver failure, you could take two Tylenol, two 500 Tylenols uh, every four hours for your pain. And so short-term uh, NSAIDs are probably okay, but I don't blame you. I mean, you want to protect your kidney. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't blame you one bit about staying away from NSAIDs because they could have a bad effect. They can raise potassium. They can decrease your kidney function. But in general, taking short-term and not allowing yourself to get dehydrated is certainly a reasonable especially if you're not uh, in an end stage of kidney, you know, your EGFR is uh, over 30, uh, probably not a big worry. Well, and it was crazy because the pain doctor prescribed the medicine when I was having the surgery, and then I had to drink that awful KX late back then when oh, yeah. I was in, oh, God. Um, but And then he came into the room, and I was going to just, you know— give him a piece of my mind because I had made it very clear. And I started telling him, like, why? And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm a kidney patient, too. And I'm like, I was totally disarmed. I'm like, oh, I I mean, you know, I never had that response from a physician before that said that. It it really diffused my frustration. And I didn't, you know, I drank. I was fine. But I was very upset. And, And, you know, sometimes mistakes happen. I mean, you know, there are medical errors and and uh, I, I guess he wanted to relieve my pain and forgot that, you know, I shouldn't have had that meds. But well, let, uh, me, let, me, let, let me just, if you don't mind, talk about uh, another other important meds that could be very dangerous. And you talked about your potassium went up. But 
potassium can be life threatening. High potassium can be life threatening. Yeah, I my heart stopped for six minutes when I was thirteen wow. um, from a high potassium, and it was right. it was from actually they put the wrong bath on my dialysis. Well, uh, I was, and was so yeah. It was it was I it was I remember it. It was like I felt really heavy, and it was I mean I can still recall the feeling. Um, and how it just slowly paralyzed my whole body till it got to my heart. Yeah, yeah, it can cause your heart to stop. But there are drugs that can that are often given. They're diuretics that can raise potassium. There are potassium sparing diuretics. So just so if you happen to be a patient with kidney disease that's prone to elevated potassium, you got to be sure that you're not getting one of these drugs that can elevate potassium, called potassium-sparing diuretics. And I, in, this, uh, in the book, it, it lists those drugs that you should be aware of if you happen to have high potassium. And certainly, NSAGE are also uh, drugs that contribute to a high potassium. And, um, you know, some people, you know, have to go on low-potassium diets, and people say, oh, I got kidney disease, I need a low-potassium diet. Very unusual. Most people that have serious potassium problems have much more advanced kidney disease, and oftentimes it's because they're taking a drug that happens to bump their kidney hmm. uh, potassium up. And as a matter of fact, again, I'll go back to the ACEs and ARBs because they're the two types of drugs, the prills and the TANs, that have been demonstrated to slow kidney function decline. But they can, not only can they cause you a temporary decline in your EGFR, although long-term they'll slow your kidney decline, they could also raise your potassium. And these drugs are being used not just for kidneys, but for heart failure. So today, uh, uh, good heart doctors and good kidney doctors are trying to see how much they can continue to use these ASARB drugs by using things like KXLate. And there's two, two newer drugs that will help keep the potassium down in the face of uh you know, using one of those drugs like yeah, an Asian and I think, yeah, two companies, I think, what is it, AstraZeneca and Relipsa make these new potassium binder yeah. drugs, which is extremely exciting to me because I think, you know, that seems like a much better way. And KXLate sure. was never really tested. I mean, it was just given. Uh, I, I can tell you, I've, I used it for my entire career. I can't tell you how many patients that I had off, maintained off dialysis for years, keeping them on Kexalate, uh, and they did fine, you know. Uh, there is a small chance of having some intestinal problem from Kexalate. That's why these newer drugs have been promoted. So we've got, we've got ways, uh, it to, is disgusting. Uh, to it is the yeah, most disgusting <laughs> thing you will ever have to well, drink. I mean, I right. it's like I I don't know, like drinking wet chalk or something. I don't know. It's just I can still like oh I my god. It. Sometimes I'm thinking maybe I'll just kind of deal with the high potassium and just <laughs> and for refuse the KX late. Um, but no, I always yielded and drank that stuff. Um, you know, I, I, before we wrap up, I think these different stages and I want to get information about how to get your book. But the last question, I think more studies have come out about uh, taking medications to uh, improve, you know, or prevent reflux. And they're finding that some of those drugs aren't always so good on your, good for your kidneys, which is something that's recently been brought to our attention. So the omeprazoles, these other uh, they're called proton pump inhibitors or PPIs. I just looked at something, believe it or not, it showed people on these types of drugs have a higher risk of COVID. That's interesting. Another reason. So they're not recommended for long-term use. That's the first thing. They could cause acute kidney failure. That's the second thing. So you should try to treat your reflux symptoms with Tums. Get well, away from diet. your alcohol, <laughs> diet, not not eating so much, not filling yourself up. Yeah, but long-term PPIs, not good, not good. Potentially can harm the kidneys. Yeah, that's, uh, um, that you know, it was pretty amazing. You don't understand how one impacts the other sometime. And it's, uh, you know, we learn over time. Um so tell us how, how do you get your book? And, uh, you know, this has been really fascinating. I think, um, you know, we're learning so much about, 
you know, the progression of kidney failure. And I just have to say that I really dislike the stages like one, two, three, four, five. And one of the reasons is, is because of the same stages as cancer. And when you're in stage four cancer, people think, you know, they're, they're pretty sick. And, and if you get to five, it's a game changer. You're, you're really have a low chance of survival sometimes. And so people equate that to kidney disease and they're, they're totally different. It's a very misleading system. I think, I wish they would have come up with letters or, or something else that instead of, and I mean, it is, we get people who email us all the time. They're 75 years old. They're in stage three kidney disease and they're like just beside themselves. Right. And we can't give medical advice, but we do try to say, well, you know, in the normal progression, here's some information to read, to ask your doctor. And I spoke to a physician once, and maybe you could verify this, that he said, you know, when you age, it's it's normal to have your kidneys start to progressively fail. I mean, that's just life. It's just an aging process. And in the wild, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but I like to get in the wild, you know, animals normally die of kidney failure if they don't have anything else happen to them. It's just one of the first organs that go. Yeah, but here's the fact. The fact is that half the people that are over 70 have an EGFR less than 60. Half. And so that's probably normal for them. And so there's really no reason to worry about it. And because most old people also have very little protein in the urine. And again, protein, high levels of urine protein is the main marker that you may lose your kidney function rapidly. And, um, you know, most folks will die of other causes. Uh, and even if they have so-called kidney failure, EGFR is less than 15 because they're not losing their kidney function rapidly. And as long as they work with the physician and they, and, and, the, and this, I referenced all of the research about when to start dialysis in my book. And my advice to people is to, is to take the book and take the information and take the resources and patients should be sharing the decisions regarding how they're managed. And right. before any be patient agrees, exactly. Before you agree, to go on dialysis, you need to know what the potential upsides and downsides of going on that machine. And there's a lot of downsides. And my advice, and we didn't get time to get into it, is for most people, there's no rush to start dialysis in most cases because people don't really get uh, the stuff that they used to get back when, when you know, in the 60s. Uh, like pericarditis or seizures and stuff like that, because they started way, way early. So you've got time, and uh, and then you'll have enough time if you're going to go on hemodialysis that you can wait till you get a fistula that matures. Right. Don't rush into it, you know. And uh, and if you still got residual kidney function, and and you've got the ability to be followed closely, and that's important. A lot of people don't have good insurance. They can't get fault, uh, get good enough follow-up, but as long as you can get reasonable follow-up every couple of weeks to have your kidney specialist or your GP follow you, you can live long, long times with CKD5, EGFR less than 15. Well, and now Medicare is paying for a nutritionist, too, um, you know, to get uh, my friend's a dietitian and a transplant recipient. And Medicare is paying for her to do consultations now. And with managed care, they're going to even increase that a little bit because, uh, you know, nutrition is so important. You know, this has been a fascinating conversation. And you can get Dr. Rowe's book, Learn the Facts About Kidney Disease, a Self-Guide to Better Kidney Health Improvement Therapies. It's available on Kindle and hard copy. The best thing is to be informed, ask questions. And I just had one final question um, that just came to mind based on what you just said. And there have been so many statistics thrown around in this country about one in 10 have kidney disease, one in seven, one in whatever the number is. But now I'm kind of questioning that based on what you said, because if they're including people who have over 60, 
<laughs> that it doesn't really make sense, the statistic, because right. they haven't defined normal for right. what the age-appropriate GFR is. Exactly. That's what needs to happen, is what is the age-appropriate GFR? There's a lot of debate in the literature. You've hit right on it, and uh, this has been a raging debate. Well, I can understand it. I mean, because I, I was in a meeting once, and I tried to organize for all of us nonprofits to try to speak with one term for like our press releases. Cause one say one in 10 CDC says over one in 10 are at risk or something like that. They all have different numbers and one person wanted one in seven and one in one in six. And I mean, it was just like, it was like a, I, I never, if I hadn't experienced it, I wouldn't believe it is such a controversial topic and we couldn't come to any agreement after this entire meeting that I had, you know, uh, monitored or did the the one in 10, one in seven, none of this, what's important is how to find people that are at risk of going to end stage, going to progressive kidney failure. And actually there's some, um, uh, there's some things in the book that'll tell you how to predict. But for most people, the, the take-home message is, for most of the folks out there with an abnormal EGFR, unless you've got high levels of protein in the urine, you probably should not be worrying a lot about your kidneys. You need to have them followed, and you may lose kidney function, but for the most part, it's, it's slow, and many people have stable renal function for many, many years. It's like your eyesight. It just kind of goes over time, but you can still see. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, what's what's interesting is, like, I, I'm, it's so refreshing to hear this because when people were quoting one in six have or one in seven, you know, that really does impact the living donor pool. Um, because if everybody thinks they're at risk of having kidney failure, why would you want to donate a kidney? Um, and it's a, um, you know, it's a, it's a very important statistic to get right, um, to educate the people. It's self-defeating for for the few. Exactly. I I totally agree. Well, Dr. Rowe, this has been so informative. Uh, again, you can get his book at amazon.com. And again, it's called Learn the Facts About Kidney Disease, a self-help guide to better health and proven therapies. I really um, admire your perseverance in, uh, and I have to say you are one, of, I just love a nephrologist that understands the diet because that doesn't happen very often. They always say, oh, go see the dietitian." I'm so <laughs> glad that you have talked about that because, you know, food is one of our best prescriptions and it needs to be, um, you know, emphasized more than a pill. Uh, diet can help more than a pill. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Rowe, and I look forward to, you know, keeping in touch and hearing what happens. Pleasure to talk to you, Laurie. Thank you so much for having me on your program. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own healthcare provider regarding your medical condition.